0: I'd ask you to turn back with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 12, and last Lord's Day we considered the first half of this chapter, verses 1 to 3, and this afternoon we turn our attention then to the remainder found in verses 4, 5, and 6. Isaiah 12, verses 4 to 6. And in that day shall ye say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, Declare his doings among the people. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. It is not enough for us merely to know the gospel, not merely enough to even retain in our minds the truth of the gospel, but we are called upon by God to speak the gospel. We are to say out loud with our voices who God is, what God has done, and the profit and benefit that we have received for our own souls. Why? Why is it necessary for us not just to know and retain it, but to also speak it? Well, at least two reasons. The first and primary reason is because it is a means by which God himself is glorified. God receives glory in the proclamation and rehearsing out loud of all that he is and all that he's done and what he has done even for our own souls. And so it's a means of glorifying him. If man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, and it is, this is our primary purpose. And one of the ways in which we fulfill that primary purpose is by speaking about the things of God. So it's important for his glory. Secondly, it's important for our own souls. It's important for our own souls. We actually benefit immensely by hearing ourselves speak about the things that God has done for ourselves. And this is you know, one of the benefits, I think, that um, perhaps ministers miss out on when they don't do open-air preaching, where you know, week by week they're, they're saying out loud the basics, going over the fundamentals of, of the gospel. It's good for, for their own soul, but it's not just true for ministers in open-air preaching. It's true for all of us, ministers and people, in our daily life when we begin to tell someone else about what we've seen what we've heard what we've learned about who God is as a savior about what God has done in the gospel and how it has affected and transformed our own souls we find far more benefit in our own souls than most of the time those who hear us it's a delightful and and spiritually savory influence upon us. We benefit ourselves by speaking out loud about the things that the Lord tells us and has shown us. Well, we're here in Isaiah chapter 12, and much of what is found in the second part relates to what I've just mentioned about speaking and declaring the great things that God hath hath done for us. You'll remember here the context. Uh, this This second half is introduced with the same words as the first half. It says, for in that day shall ye say. And this goes back into chapter 11 at verse 10, where we see uh, something similar. And so we noted previously that the context for all of this, what day? In that day. Okay. It's not in a day, but in a specific day, in that day, the definitive article. What day is it? Well, it's the day of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day of his reign from glory, and so on and so forth. And we've noted in light of uh, Isaiah chapter 11 that it has first relevance for what is prophesied in in chapter, 11, in chapter 11, which is parallel to what we see in Romans 11. So the day that the Lord has appointed for uh, days of gospel advance and glory and the recovery and, and grafting of the Jews back into the stock of the church, and with them the fullness of the Gentiles being brought in. But we've also noted that, that it is applicable wherever the gospel goes, and at all times that the gospel is proclaimed, and wherever Christ's reign is to be found. And so it's applicable in all those circumstances, including our own, and including at this time and in this place. So you can take all that You'll recall from previous, the last few sermons, uh, some of the other details that pertain uh, to all of this. We bring that with us in coming to the second half of Isaiah chapter 12. We're going to note two things this afternoon, two primary points. There is, first of all, God's deeds, and then secondly, the response to those deeds. So, God's deeds and then the response. Most of what we see described here. Is actually the language is 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 addressing our response, but we begin with, and the text makes clear we begin with God's deeds. First of all, God's deeds. Who is it that's commanding? We have a a number of of running injunctions here: Uh, you shall say, call upon His name, declare His doing, sing, cry out, and so on. Who is it that's commanding it? Well, it's the one who first does excellent things, to which we're responding. And so God is the one who goes before us and he accomplishes all these works that he's going to do. And then he commands us how to respond to those, what we're to do, say, think, and resolve uh, to do in response to these things. And it's, of course, you'll notice um, two places in this section, you have the word for. So amid all of these calls, to call upon his name, declare his doings, sing, and so on. You'll notice, first of all, in verse 4, that it says, um, and that, excuse me, you, you'll, you'll notice in verse uh, 5, sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. So here's the purpose the reason. It's because of God's deeds. That's where we begin with God's deeds. Or in verse 6, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. So it's who he is and what he does precedes our response to all of that. And so we, we begin rightly in understanding this passage with with God's deeds. He is the Lord, He is Jehovah. He is the Holy One of Israel. This is, of course, this title of Holy One is something very near and dear to Isaiah's own heart. Holiness is found throughout the entire book. He's talking about holiness so frequently, and we recognize why. We trace it back to his experience as it's recounted for us in Isaiah 6, when the heavens are open and the the, the train of the Lord is filling the temple, and he's hearing this this anthem, holy, 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 right? This has an indelible impression upon him. It shapes his thinking, and it shapes much of what is given by inspiration in his message. But it's not as if Isaiah stands alone in this. I mean, go to the New Testament, you think of Mary, right? Mary has something to say about this as well. She says, holy is his name, right? When she's speaking of the Lord. The Lord's come and appeared to her and and told her what's going to happen. Holy is his name. Or you think of of Hannah, a counterpart in the the Old Testament to Mary, and there she is. None is as holy as the Lord. And we could begin to multiply examples. Many of them will come to your own mind uh, at the moment. This theme of addressing, recognizing, and addressing the Lord as the one Who is holy. And one of the things that's so shocking about this, of course, is that the natural man absolutely hates holiness. The natural man hates holiness. He can tolerate the idea of God's mercy. But the idea of God's holiness is intolerable. It's intolerable. It runs so deeply against the grain of of the natural man. Why? Because holiness is God's separation from sin and sinners' separation, really, from even creation. It's, it speaks of his, his blinding beauty and purity and perfections. And, and the natural man flees from God's perfections with dread. I said he can tolerate mercy. Not really even that. Mercy presupposes the need for mercy. And so the natural man flees from the perfections that are to be found in God with dread. Who God is is a testimony against us, not only what God says. And so they will defy God's holiness, but they will never deify God's holiness. You think of the Greeks with their pantheon, you know, they'll they'll fabricate out of their depraved imaginations these make-believe gods and you know they're gods that give us this thing and they're gods that give us that thing and gods that control you know the storms when we're on the sea and gods that part you know deal with the water and so on and so forth but look as long as you wish none of them are characterized by holiness because the natural man defies holiness never deifies it Everything that belongs to God, everything that is found in God is holy. Everything that comes from God is is holy. Right? We have a Bible, and on most of our spines, like mine, it says, Holy Bible. His Word is holy. It comes to us, separated from all other books, perfectly pure, and so on. You think about His law his law is holy. It's one of the main attributes given to us of the law. You think about within the law, God's day. The Sabbath is a holy day. We're to sanctify it. We're to keep it holy, right? His day. Everything that comes from him and belongs to him is holy. Even his angels, right? The the elect angels are referred to as holy angels, the servants of the Lord that are dwelling in his presence while well, we look below the heavens and lo and behold, his people are accounted a holy people separated from the rest of mankind as unto the Lord holiness is written over all of this. His worship is holy, right? This is the one of the big messages that come, comes to the Israelites. They show up at the temple and the high priest comes out and he has a golden plate on his forehead Holiness unto the Lord. They're, they're faced with the reality of of all of, of these things. So the natural man hates holiness, but the believer delights in holiness. That which was the revulsion of our hearts in the past becomes the delight of, of our hearts. We love to worship him in the beauty of holiness. We we think of holiness as beautiful exquisitely, irresistibly beautiful. It's attractive. Just as attractive as someone groping about in the dark would find light and and, and, and running to the light to have the light hit our face and illuminate our paths and so on. So much more with the Lord. There is beauty in his holiness. We delight in it. We would have it no other way. We're so thankful that the book we read and hear preached from and sing from is a holy book and that all that belongs to the Lord is holy. But here in verse 6, it says, great is the holy one of Israel in the midst of thee. His greatness is unsearchable. That is, you can't plummet the depths of it. You can't discover it all. You can't find out all of the greatness of who God is himself. Indeed, when we think of anything that relates to who God is, the greatness of that that our mind lights upon is so great that you can take everything else collectively and amassed in the entire universe, everything outside of God, and it is as nothing in comparison. So great is His greatness. His greatness in his being, his greatness in terms of his eternity from everlasting to everlasting. He is, he is God. The greatness of his wisdom, which Paul says is past finding out. The greatness of his power, which is invincible. The greatness of all of his resources, limitless, infinite resources in his being. And it's out of that fullness that we that we receive. You think of the greatness of his love. Right? Paul says, look, get out your calculator, your measuring tape, whatever other metaphor you want to use. And start attempting to measure the length and height and depth and breadth of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you can't you can't get your mind around it, much less anything else. It's incomprehensible. It's incomprehensible. In its extent and fullness, the greatness of God's love. Great is the Holy One of Israel. Great is the Holy One of Israel. This is where we begin with who God is and where is His residence? The Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. In the midst of thee. Jehovah Shema. God is there. Right? This is the great promise. And this is the core privilege of all of God's people, prefigured through all the Old Testament types, fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is near. God with us. We who were at one time far off have been made nigh through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord in the midst, the manifestation of his presence to his people. We know that God is omnipresent. We know something about his immensity, what the Bible describes, tells us, reveals to us. But there's the manifestation of his presence in the midst, in the middle of his people, so that you can have a handful, two or three, gathered together in Christ's name, and Christ is in the midst, the very minimum. A worship service is called, a blizzard comes. And only the minister and one other person shows up. They conduct worship. There's the two. Christ is in the midst. There he is coming to us by the Spirit through his ordinances, making himself known to us. He dwells in the midst of his people. And the Psalms are full of this. We're singing about it, it seems, constantly. That's true collectively as Zion, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course it's true. Individually as well. For, for the believer. Why? Because the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Godhead. Dwells in the believer. God dwells in the midst of us. Individually. Jesus tells his disciples. Just prior to his death. In that upper room discourse. John fourteen, fifteen, and 16. That the Spirit will come, be sent from the Father and the Son in order that he might make a home for Father, Son, and Spirit within the bosom soul of of the believer. The Lord is in the midst of his, his people. This is him making himself known to us. But then, so we begin in terms of God's deeds. We begin with God himself. Who is he? For great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. And then what he does. In verse 5. For he hath done excellent things. He hath done excellent things. This is known in all of the earth. Excellent things. Children how excellent. He's done excellent things. How excellent are these things. They are the most excellent. Infinitely excellent things. You know there was a gathering and someone were to come to announce that there is a definitive full, full proof cure for cancer. People would be really excited to hear it. They would say, this person has come with excellent things. Right? Lots of people dying of cancer. Here we have a remedy, a cure for it. This seems like an ex- excellent thing. But the Lord comes with us with much more excellent things than that. He comes with a cure for sin. Cancer can kill your body. Sin will kill your body, for sure, and your soul. And it will result, for the body and the soul, eternal death and damnation for all of eternity. A bout of cancer, in contrast, even a, even a fatal one, terminal one, in contrast to eternity in hell, is nothing. Christ has come to cure sin. Now, in saying that, and if we want to extrapolate, we can actually say that it encompasses everything else. So, in a sense, it is the cure for cancer. The Lord has come in his redeeming work with a cure for sin. Sin is the cause for disease and death and so on and so forth. And in his accomplished work, He's destroyed death and he is pleased to heal disease in this world at times according to his will, but he heals all disease for all of his people. In the end, the resurrection is the answer to everything that ails you, everything that kills you. This is the most excellent thing. These are the most excellent things that the Lord comes with. So excellent, the passage says, that they will be made known in all of the earth. So excellent that they'll be known in all the earth. I mean, if someone does a great feat, there's a scientific discovery, everybody's talking about it. It's on the headlines and internet and people in the streets. They're saying, hey, did you hear? Yeah. Or someone breaks some athletic record. You know, they broke the world record for all of history and running the fastest mile or whatever. People are going to talk about it. Did you hear about this out of the other thing? But this news about the most excellent things Is going to spread like wildfire and cover the earth so that as you well know the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea it's made known in all of the earth now we take this of course in its immediate context and you think of what is described in Romans 11 and the engrafting of the Jews the fullness of the Gentiles being brought in life from the dead this 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 unparalleled influx in terms of gospel advance and so on And then you come back to a passage like this and say, He has done excellent things. um, For he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. And it brings a whole new meaning, doesn't it? To what that may and does entail for us here. It spreads like wildfire. This is good news. The good news of the gospel in the hand of God being brought forward. A demonstration of his own power. I mean, if someone comes and says to a person who has plenty of wealth, Hey, I'm going to give you another $10,000, well, that's, yeah, that's nice. It's not great news, really. I mean, it's, it's fine, but it's, it's not great news. So much of man's news is either not good at all. I mean, if you listen to the news, most of it's bad news. So it's either not good news or not relevant, not relevant to what's really important, not relevant to what really matters. In Psalm 126, last week I did the same. I connected what we have here to Psalm 126, just to kind of help us in expanding our appreciation for that particular psalm. It's speaking about the Lord turning back the captivity of Zion. And... um, You'll notice the language there. Then was our mouth filled with laughter, our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen. So this is the heathen speaking. The Lord hath done great things for them. And then the response. The Lord hath done great things for us. Whereof we are made glad. Right? So this is true if you want to think in terms of its immediate fulfillment in the future and millennial glory how that will be the case, the great things that the Lord has done, Uh, but it's true as well in in a measure for the people of God in every age, wherever the gospel is is proclaimed. The Lord is bringing good news. Good news. The good news is chiefly found in the incarnation, that which everything has been pointing to. In chapter 9, the Son that is to be given. The child is to be born. Son, that's to be given. Uh, chapter eleven. The one who's, who's prophesied there, Emmanuel, and so on. It's chiefly in the incarnation. And isn't it isn't it interesting that um, when 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 the incarnation occurs, all of the all of the things that are described actually reinforce this, right? The, the heavens are parted open. There's this angelic host. And they're singing glory to God in the highest. And there's this declaration of good news that the incarnate God has come and the Son of God has, has been born. And then you, you have the, the shepherds and they're receiving this and they're going with that news. And then you have the wise men who hear tell of the news and they're coming from, you know mind-boggling distances in that in that time to in response to to the good news and then you have all of the individual examples jesus is brought into the temple and look at the language of simeon simeon is absolutely elated he's saying it's happened it's come this is the best news ever i can die now you know lord take me home you know here the redemption has has come anna who's ancient is you know, same thing, these sorts of responses to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's the same everywhere you look. And no wonder, because the, the, the excellent news that, that is associated and attached to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ answers absolutely everything that is worst in this world. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is the coming of the one who is life and who bestows life who is light and who scatters darkness. We live in a world of death. You know, you have leather shoes on that represents a dead animal. You know, you ate meat at lunch that represents death. You have death all over the place around you. People dying, things dying, and so on and so forth, right? The world is, is built upon the ruins of, of death. And we too are going to die. And we can see the, we can see the beginnings of it. Uh, already in our own bodies the lord comes and he as i like to say bad grammar but it makes the it makes it stick in our minds the lord jesus christ came and he died death dead right he died death dead he killed death he defeated it he conquered it he had victory over death this is the best news because Some of the worst things that we have to face in this world are the reality of death as a consequence of sin. All of the loss that that represents. What else? Hell on the backside of death. The Lord Jesus Christ came as the one to destroy hell, to deliver, as we sang from Psalm 40, people from this pit and to set their feet upon Himself, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He defeats hell. He shuts its gaping mouth for the people of God. He snatches them as brands from the fire. He delivers them so that they will know nothing, nothing, nothing of its pains and torments. This is excellent news. Indeed. The devil, the enemy of all that is good and God. He too, his head squashed like a bug. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil defeated. The devil exposed. The devil vanquished. The devil humiliated. By the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil is defeated. This is excellent news. He who has. You know the the little g. God of this world. Who holds sway. Over the powers of the air. And so on and so forth. He who holds in his grip and under his dominion and tyranny in his kingdom of death and darkness, the Lord comes and destroys him and kicks open the gates of his kingdom, levels to the ground, the walls, and sets free captives by his grace. You think of all the consequences of this. The Lord coming and saying, I'm going to address pain, physical pain, soul pain. I'm going to I'm going to remedy sickness. I'm going to, I'm going to remove all suffering. I'm going to defeat all unjust war. You can multiply it, right? We open the, the pages of, of Revelation 21 and 22, and there it is. And the Lord's saying, there is no more death. There is no more pain. There is no more sorrow. All these things are gone. And coming to glory in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ Has brought an end to all of this for his people. This is the most excellent news. For he hath done excellent things, and it will be made known in all the earth. Why? Because as we saw last week, God himself is my salvation. God is my salvation. Not just God brings salvation, he himself is salvation. And he gives himself to his people, and therefore they are saved. And so we, we begin with God's deeds. Secondly, the response, which is what forms the rest of verses 5, 6, and 7. Who is it that's being addressed? Uh, we're told that it is the inhabitants of Zion. Zion. Cry out and shout, Thou inhabitant of Zion. Inhabitants of Zion. Hmm. You tie again this to Isaiah 11, Romans 11, and you go back to Isaiah 2, and we could read all of verses 1 to 5, which speak about the the, uh, post-millennial glory. But notice in verse 3, and many people shall come, uh, many people shall go and say, Come ye, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he shall teach us of his ways. We will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You take all of that and connect it to what you see here at the end of, of chapter 12, right? It's speaking about the city of the great king, not just, not just the picture of the rock, Upon in the city of Jerusalem, upon which the temple is built, and so on and so forth. This is speaking about what that represents regarding the church of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glorious things are spoken of thee, Zion, O city of God. The church is the most glorious institution ever known to man. This is what it's speaking about—the Church of the Lord Jesus. So that we come to the New Testament Scriptures, and there we are in Hebrews chapter twelve, and we're told, "You haven't come to Mount Zion, but or you haven't come to Mount Sinai, but ye are come to Mount Zion." Indeed, we have. We have come to Mount Zion. There's a day coming when the Jews will come back to Mount Zion. The fullness of the Gentiles will come to Mount Zion. We ourselves are found right now with our feet within. The borders of Zion. To be a citizen of the household of God. That's who's being addressed. The inhabitants of Zion. And the exhortation, the command, the injunction is what? Well, there's six parts, actually. are commanded to do six things. You look at who God is and what God does. How are we to respond to this? This is how we're to respond to it. The first thing is praise. And in that day shall ye say, praise. The Lord. This is a God centered joy. This is God centered thanksgiving. Sin came and spoiled joy, sin gutted the world of joy. Salvation restores joy and brings it with fullness. We are a people of praise. We rejoice in the Lord, Philippians 3 1, Philippians 4 4, twice in short compass. We see it all through the Psalms. We rejoice in the Lord. It is a God centered, Christ centered joy. Isn't it interesting that um, you look at the redeemed of the Lord and, and we're told that God Himself rejoices over His people? He rejoices. Over his own people. Is it any wonder then that Paul says to the Philippians and says to the church in Thessalonica. That they are Paul's joy. Of course. Of course that's true. It seems a little odd at first. You know you think well these people in, in Philippi or in Thessalonica or whatever. Paul's saying you're my joy. And my crown he says to Thessalonians. Thessalonians. But of course, because the Lord rejoices over his people. And so God's people should rejoice over God's people as well, because our joy is in the Lord himself. It's praise here. All praise and honor and glory goes to the Lord, none to man, none to the machinery of the world, none to anything else outside of the Lord himself. Secondly, we're to call upon his name. In that day, shall you say, praise the Lord, call upon, upon his name. Call upon his name. This is, this is a, a, a way of describing prayer, among other things, to, to call upon the name of the Lord. You can hear all sorts of noise, and you know, maybe it's the kids in the house, and they're hollering and carrying on, and all sorts of things are going on, and you pretty much just turn it off. And then all of a sudden, out of that, no, out of that noise, you hear the cry, Mama, and your mind kind of engages again. Your name has been invoked. And now you kind of scurry to your feet and go find out what's going on. Right, there's there's something about that to invoke the name of the Lord himself. The people of God can from the ends of the earth look to the Lord and call upon the name of the Lord. Why? Because God hears. God hears every whimper, every whisper, every cry. Even that, as Paul tells us in Romans, which is what as gibberish. You know, what, what is inexpressible, what can't be articulated within the hearts of, of the Lord's people. We call upon his name. We call upon his name. We're invoking his name, though, not just in terms of our help, but in terms of magnifying him. Prayer is first and foremost adoration. Prayer is first and foremost praise and worship, speaking to God about God. And so we call upon his name and saying, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. He has done excellent things. We respond by acknowledging that his name is excellent in all the earth. It goes on. It says, Declare his doings among the people. The doings, of course, are the things we've already heard about. The excellent things that he's done for us. But we are declare those doings. Out of the heart, the mouth speaketh. The heart's full of what God has done. The mouth will be full of what God has done. Everywhere in the Gospels, this is true. Right? The blind man from birth is healed by the Lord Jesus Christ. He can't keep his mouth shut if he wants to. Instead, he's running hither and yon. And telling people about who Jesus is and what Jesus does. It's proclaiming the good things that God has done for his people. And that could be multiplied. Instances of that can be multiplied. Right? In the Psalms, we, we say, Come hear what the Lord has done for my soul. We're saying, Listen, you gotta hear this. Listen to what I'm about to tell you about what God has done for my soul. And the reason for that is not just to recount something interesting or intriguing, but to draw on another portion of the Psalms. So magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. We declare his doings in order to bring others into the orbit of worshiping and adoring him, of extolling and magnifying him. We're a means through which they are stimulated to praise him. And to come to him. And to receive from him. And to glorify him. We're to declare his doings. This isn't just ministers are called to preach. Other people aren't. But it's not restricted to ministry. It's not restricted to preaching here. All of the Lord's people. Who have had good things done for their soul. Are to declare those doings. To each other. For edification. And to the world at large. For salvation. Fourthly. Make mention that his name is exalted. This ties in with what I've just said. This is, there's something here, a feeling. This is something not just recounted in a way that is um, abstract. It's felt. It's something lived to show God's greatness. This is what desperately, men desperately need. Because people make idols and they fashion those idols after the likeness of themselves. And then they become like what they worship and so on. But men, as we sing in the Psalms, you know, men men think to themselves that God is like them. And that's how they're going to always think. But we're, ca- we're called to come. And as this passage says, make mention that his name is exalted. He is not who you think he is. He's not at all like you think he is. And all of the distortions and perversions and the depravity subjects minds to need to be answered and addressed. And we need to say, you need to see and hear and understand the greatness of God. I'm, I want to tell you about him and show you his, his greatness. I think at times people are shy, timid feel vulnerable, and so on. And I get it. It seems unnatural. It seems awkward. Out of place, whatever, to say certain things at certain times to certain people. I'm here to tell you from, from experience a single sentence about the Lord. As strange as it might feel, and as difficult as it might be for you to express it, can be like a bolt of lightning to someone. In the workplace, at school, in the neighborhood, by the grace of God to muster the boldness and say something about God's greatness and let it sit there. Put it out there. And it may jolt people a little, but it'll be kind of jolt you get from a bolt of lightning. The Lord is pleased to use the means he's appointed. Fifthly, it goes on, make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord. Sing unto the Lord. One of the things that struck me here, studying this passage, was that this is actually an incredibly peculiar feature of the Lord's people. Christians are singers. We're a singing people. Christians sing. You you know, we're used to this, right? We're, We're accustomed to it. It's so familiar to us. But if you stop and think about it, look around. No one sings. They'll listen to music. Everybody does tons of that. They may even try to a little bit sing along with it at times in their car. But generally speaking, people don't sing. It's interesting because even the false forms of Christianity like Rome, they don't sing either. They don't sing in their mass and all the other gibberish they do. Christians sing. This is something very peculiar to the Lord's people. The Lord loves to hear his people sing. He loves it. You know, we might hear... Someone in the house playing piano. It's kind of refreshing. They're playing a classical piece whatever, and it does something that's kind of refreshing to my my heart. Or they're, they're practicing their violin or something. That's stimulating. But what is it to the Lord, right, for his people to praise him? Well, the Bible says he inhabits those praises. That gives us a clue. But the Lord loves to hear his people sing. And this is one way in which we magnify him. The Christian is very different. We sing every day. We sing in family worship. We sing at public worship. We sing at the prayer meeting. We're singing people. And it's part of what God's designed for us to respond to the great deeds that God has done. We're to sing to him. Sixthly, it says, cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion. So the last thing is, in terms of response, is to cry out and shout. Now, crying out and shouting in and of itself is nothing remarkable. The wicked will cry out on the last day, when their souls are damned. The foolish virgins cried out, pounding on the door to be let in, and were shut out. The five foolish virgins in Christ's parable. We could give lots of other examples. Now, this is a cry. It's not, it's more than mere noise. Right? The, the, the contemporary evangelical church in America is really good at noise. They make a ton of noise. They can fabricate all sorts of noise. It's not noise that is, that is needed. It's not even cry out and shout in the pulpit. Right? You have screamers, preachers who are just screamers, screaming at the top of their lungs the entire time. We don't dismiss that entirely. The Bible says, the prophets, lift up your voice like a trumpet. There's a time for the minister to raise his voice. He can shout. Not screaming the whole time. But even that's not what we're talking about. right? So, so it's this cry out and shout. It's, it's, actual, it's, it's depicting joyous sound that is directed unto the Lord. How do we know? Because you can take clues from other places. You go to the New Testament, go to the book of Revelation... And it says in Revelation, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain, exclamation mark. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb. That's heaven. The depictions given to us of heaven are similar. The voice of the angels is like mighty roaring uh, waters, we're told. Other times, the sound of trumpets. All of that depicts volume, loudness, right? And so, this, this, is, this is helpful to us. It's speaking about crying out and shouting unto the Lord. This can't take place without exertion. And that exertion is fueled by enthusiasm, that exertion is fueled by desire. You think, wow, it's rather awkward, right? Is it really? I mean, go to the Clemson, you know, Death Valley, go to the ball game, and the noise would be deafening, I'm sure. Right there, you're going to hear lots of people screaming at the top of their lungs, and no one thinks it's weird. So the concept shouldn't be utterly unfamiliar to us. You know, what, what the, what's being pictured should not be utterly unfamiliar to us. We're to be a people who are engaged in our praise. We sing with volume as God gives us help. And it, it's a picture, if you will, of shouting from the mountaintops, the glory of the Lord, and I think of this, lifting up the voice in the street. you think of the language of the uh, the wa- lady wisdom in uh, the book of Proverbs. She stands at the head of the street, lifts up her voice, calling to the simple to come. I've preached on that on the street actually, but the the point is. This is what's being described. We're to, we're to cry out and shout, in this sense, before the Lord. All things are to be done decently and in order. We're not describing the kind of chaos that happens in the church at large today. But it, it, we also don't want to gut it of its meaning and say, well, it means nothing. No, it's speaking about hearts that are full and mouths that are full and, and the expression of that uh, to the Lord. And so you see, we, we begin with gospel deeds. We, we, it results in a gospel response. Right, you think of the Heidelberg Catechism. You have guilt, grace, gratitude—that tripart, triad. Right, the, the, you begin with guilt, and then you're led to grace, and then it results in in gratitude. Or you begin with sin and misery, and you're led to salvation in Christ. You respond with thanksgiving and new obedience, and so on. That gospel pattern that's seen in so many places throughout the Holy Scriptures. Well, we have that. We have we have the deeds of God and the response to those deeds. But you can invert that. If there's no response, there must be no sight of the deeds. If there's an absence of praise and calling upon his name and declare his doings and making mention that he's exalted and singing to him and crying out and shouting, if there's no response, it must be a result of there being no sight of the deeds in themselves. Which helps us because that means to increase our response... That can only take place by increasing our sight of the deeds. Deeper, fuller, sweeter familiarity with who God is and what God does is what produces the love and gratitude and obedience and all the six things that are listed here in responding to the Lord and to his grace. This this will all be set on steroids in the days ahead. When the Lord comes in the power of his glory with the gospel and we see the, 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 the Lord fulfilling the prophecies that he's given in the latter day glory, but my friends, we are able to drink from this cup, to savor it, to revel in it, because we live right now in the reign of the gospel and under the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are beneficiaries ourselves. This will be put into the mouth of, to use Paul's language, all Israel in due course. But it is put into our mouth and heart, right here and right now. May the Lord gather glory to himself through these things. Let's pray. Almighty God in heaven, fill our hearts and thereby fill our mouths with praise for thy great name and receive that praise through the mediation of jesus christ truly the lord hath done great things for us which will be made known in all of the earth thou hast done great things for us whereof thou hast made us glad lord we are thankful for christ and all that he is and all that he's done Magnify thy Son, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.